Hey everybody, it's Chris. Welcome or welcome back to the Beyond Church podcast. Hey, at the end of this conversation, would you head to our socials at Beyond Church AU, either on Instagram or Facebook and give us a follow. That's the easiest way to share this content with a friend who might find it helpful. And while you're at it, you can click the link in our description to sign up to our email newsletter. That's the easiest way to stay up to date on everything that's going on around here at Beyond. But in the meantime, I hope this following conversation inspires you to take your next step on your faith journey. Well, it is um, it is so good to have you here with us this morning as um, as we jump into this new series. And if we haven't met before, uh, my name's Chris, and I'm just part of the team here at Beyond. It's so great to have you um, here with us, and I'm I'm super excited for this series. So if you're new here, here's the thing um, that you need to know: is this is not a, a normal series, but you wouldn't know that. Um, and if you are normally here, this is not going to be like a normal series because um, typically what we do uh, with a series is we'll take camp out an idea or a topic and we'll kind of come at it from a whole heap of different angles, usually for about three or four weeks, and um, we'll kind of make it really tangible, really applicable to your life, and hopefully really, really helpful. Um, With this series, we just wanted to ask you a whole bunch of questions. We're like, hey, if you could ask for a friend, if no one knew what you were asking, what would you ask about faith, about life, about spirituality, what are your friends asking, Uh, what are the people who you you know go to church asking, what are are you afraid to ask in church, what are the people who don't go to church, what are they asking? And um, and I'm super, super, super excited for this series. Um, One, uh, because this is really why we, we started Beyond um, nearly seven years ago. The reason that we created Beyond um, was because there are so many great churches in this area, but we just felt that, that uh, what uh, Morton Bay needed wasn't another church, but a different type of church, one that helped people who didn't go to church and who weren't interested in church engage with Jesus. And so that's really our heart here, and that's our mission, is to have these um, interesting conversations. And so also, um, I want to uh, have this conversation because there's a whole bunch of things that when you, um, you start to like, meet Jesus followers, that they're like, I, I don't know the answer to this question, but I feel like I'm not allowed to ask it. And I feel like I just shouldn't be asking it. And so we just were like, hey, let's, let's have a conversation about it. And so um, this week, I'm going to start the conversation. And then next week, you are not going to want to miss next week. Here's why. Because I won't be up here. It's going to be awesome. Um, we've got a panel of people who are coming to give you a whole bunch of different perspectives on uh, a whole bunch of questions that you've asked. Um, and I've just given them all the hard ones. So we're going to start with the easy ones um, today. And so I'm going to run for next week. Um, but before we get into it, I just wanted to um, highlight some ground rules. Okay, here are some ground rules uh, for the conversation that we're going to have this week and uh, next week. First ground rule, and this is kind of obvious, but I just feel like I should probably state it. Um, my answers are based on my current understanding of the collection of documents that Christians call the Bible, okay? Um, because I'm a pastor, and because I believe that the Bible is the Word of God, it would make sense that that's what my answers are based on. However... Here's the thing, there's a whole bunch of stuff that those collection of documents called the Bible doesn't talk about. And if you ask a question that's related to that, I will tell you very specifically, this is my opinion, okay? So that's that's the first ground rule. Uh, Second ground rule is this, um, don't be upset if we don't answer your question. Um, We had nearly 60 questions come in, okay? Trying to navigate through 60 questions. So here's here's the way we're going to do it. What we did uh, this week and next week, we're answering the most popular of the 60 questions that you asked. And then after the series, when we do our Beyond the Message podcast, which is a podcast we release after every series, uh, we're going to try and answer as many questions as we can on the podcast. So if you have more questions that come up, uh, if there are other questions that you're like, oh, I kind of wish that, I feel like he missed that, I wish he would talk about that, um, I wish the panel would have spoken about that, um, keep submitting them and we'll clarify them and we'll answer them um, throughout uh, on the podcast. And the final ground rule is pretty simple. 
um, here's what I'd ask. Would you just be gracious? Um, be gracious to me. Be gracious to the people who ask the questions. Be gracious to the panel um, guests next week. Because I don't know if it, if it bugs you, but one of the things that really, really bugs me at the moment about our culture is it feels like if you don't agree with someone, like there's something wrong with them or they're like you've got to cancel them or you've got to shut their perspective off. And I feel like so often in our relationships, what we actually want is for when someone has a different opinion to you or a different perspective to you, what you want more than anything is to someone to ask a question and to be curious and to be like, hey, what, why is it you believe that? Why is it you hold that? And so here's what I'd love, just for the next two weeks, is for us to just hold that space here, is to just be super, super curious and be the, be the way that we wish that maybe the rest of culture was or the rest of uh, our friends were as well. So that's, that's enough of the preamble. Um, we're going to jump into the first question. The questions will come up on the screen. The first question is, did Jesus have a girlfriend or a partner? Believe it or not, this question was asked so much, and I think it's, it's such a fun question. Um, this kind of question kind of will often come in waves and cycles through culture. Probably the last big time this question um, was brought up was because of a fantastic book called The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. Um, came out in 2003, and then um, some of you didn't know it was a book. Some of you just knew that Tom Hanks played like Robert Langdon in the 2006 in the movie The Da Vinci Code. But effectively, it kind of came up, and uh, the, the storyline, if you're not familiar with that book or you haven't seen the movie, the general storyline is that there's kind of two organizations, one's trying to get the truth out, one's trying to suppress it, and it's the idea that Jesus and Mary Magdalene had a baby together, and then the, the bloodline of Jesus is kind of like out. Now, here's the thing about works of fiction. They're works of fiction, but the best works of fiction, and this is why I think Dan Brown is so good at what he does, is they take just enough truth and then mix it with just enough fiction, so you're like, it, this could have possibly happened, right? This, this, is, this is a legitimate thing. And then what Dan Brown did so, so well, and it was great, um, is he actually referenced legitimate historical documents, like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Mary. But then part of the challenge was is people, there came, like, people started saying, oh, well, you know, Christians, they, they don't know about these secret gospels. They're like hidden, they're these secret documents, and they've been trying to suppress it and trying to hide it. Um, let, me, let me speak to that, a, a few things around that. First of all, if, you have, if, you, you know, if you're into, not even if you've just like, studied it, but if, you've, like, if you're interested in ancient history, te uh, typically you would have heard about the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, some of these other documents. Um, they're not new, they're not surprises, they're not hidden. So many people, so many historians, so many um, people who study this stuff know about it. The reason that they're not included in the collection of documents uh, that we call the New Testament, well, there's a couple of reasons. One, often they come out centuries and centuries later. Um, and, they're, uh, and so, like, the, the documents we have that, we are, that are included in the, the, uh, the Bible, that we, uh, are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're the four biographical accounts we have of Jesus' life. They're written within the first sort of... Um, 60 to 70 years after the death and the resurrection of Jesus. These other Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, often come out two to three hundred years after the fact. And they often have a very, very deliberate political or social justice agenda in the documents that goes against everything else that any of the closest sources that we have to the life of Jesus talk to us about it. And so the reason they were never adopted into the church is because early, um, early Jesus followers read them and they're like, this is so different to anything we've ever read before. We think there's an agenda going on. The other thing uh, that, that's important to know is just because it says like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Mary uh, doesn't mean it was actually written by them. Kind of like, um, you know, influences today, uh, when people like want to get a product marketed or they want people to um, kind of come on board with a particular campaign, they'll pay influences money to 
talk about their position. What people would do in the first couple of centuries is they would ascribe a famous person's name or someone who was important in the movement to that document in the hopes that it would be adopted because they were using the, the credibility of that individual's name in the document. But just to kind of give you a really practical example, there is one document called the Gospel of Mary. Um, this is kind of what Dan Brown kind of leaned on uh, pretty heavily in uh, the Da Vinci Code. And here's the only reference we have. So what happens in the Gospel of Mary? It's in the middle, uh, we found it in the middle of the second century, or it's dated rather, to the middle of the second century. Um, we only have just over 50%, I think like 55% of the document we have, like we don't even have the whole thing. And effectively, it's a conversation between Mary and two of Jesus' close disciples, Peter and Andrew. And this is the only reference we have um, to, to Mary. Uh, this is Peter and Andrew say, Sister, we, uh, we know, uh, I've misspelled that, we know that you are much loved by the Saviour as no other woman. That's it. That's it. That, that could mean so many things to a historian. It could mean that, you know, Mary was on the inner circle. It could mean that Mary and Jesus had a special relationship. But I think it is a massive jump to say that from this, we can know that Jesus had a girlfriend or Jesus had a wife and they had little children together. Um, the other uh, document that kind of, it actually, this one came out after the Da Vinci Code. It's called the Gospel of Jesus's Wife. Um, and to call it the Gospel of Jesus's Wife is... It's probably a little bit of a misnomer. It's, it's, a, it's a document of papyrus, and there's seven lines on it. It's kind of an excerpt of a document, and there's seven lines on there, and one of the lines, one of the seven lines says this, Jesus said to them, my wife. Now, this, this was discovered by uh, Karen King, Karen King of the Harvard Divinity School in 2012, and right when she was about to publish about this in the Harvard Theological Journal, the Harvard Theological Journal pulled her article. They weren't trying to cover anything up. The reason they pulled it is because they wanted more stringent scientific testing done on the piece of papyrus that was used. And what they discovered after more stringent scientific testing on the piece of papyrus was two things. First of all, they found out that the papyrus was dated to the medieval period. And secondly, they found that the ink used on the piece of papyrus had components that would have not been accessible or known to people who were using ink in the medieval period. So even Karen King and a lot of other historians came out and pretty much made the acknowledgement, this is a fake, this is a forgery. So, did Jesus have a, uh, have a girlfriend or a partner? It's kind of interesting in a, in a fictional work, but the, we have no evidence. So, to the best of our knowledge, no, Jesus did not have a girlfriend or a partner. Uh, second question, can you be a Christian and believe in evolution? Um, this is a good one. So, let me answer this way. When Paul is writing to a church in Corinth, uh, he's writing to a church in the city of Corinth. He says these words. He says, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Now, just for a little bit of context, you need to know what's going on in the city of Corinth. Corinth was wild, okay? Like, like Corinth was so, 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 so wild. Like, um, there was a massive big temple, temple there to the goddess Athena. It was pretty a regular part of their culture that you would be married, you'd have a family, and then you would go to the temple and have sex with the temple prostitutes as part of the, the rites of that pagan society. Corinth, the church itself, was so pagan that when these people became Jesus followers, they still had this messed up worldview that what would often happen is they would get together and they'd celebrate communion, which is where we'd, uh, we'd have bread and wine in remembrance of um, Jesus' death and resurrection. They would get so excited that they would get absolutely written off. And so Paul has to write to this church and kind of go, hey, um, 
yeah, look, when you celebrate communion, could you just, could you maybe tame it down a little bit and not have everyone like a drunken mess, like walking around, okay? You thought you'd been in part of a church that had problems. Corinth was a mess. And so Paul's writing this letter to them and he's trying to get across, hey, in the, in the midst of all the messiness that's going on, here's what I want you to know is the most, most, most important thing that you can know. And here's what he says, that Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture says, he was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. So effectively, what Paul is saying is, hey, the, the most important thing is not how, did the, how was the world made? Was it seven days? Was it, is it an old earth? Is it a young earth? He, he would say, hey, the most important thing, the thing that makes you a Jesus follower is, do you have faith that Jesus died for your sins, that he was buried and that he was raised again? If that's it, that's, that's, that's all you need. Paul said, that is all you need. The rest of it, for me, is very, that, to me, that is very freeing. Because what that means as Jesus followers is you can follow the scientific evidence wherever it leads you. You can follow the scientific evidence wherever it leads you because what makes you a Jesus follower is not your view of how the world was created. So here's a couple of questions that I'd give you to, that you can help to figure it out because I don't want you to take on my uh, viewpoint. I want you to have your own viewpoint on this because um, there are a whole bunch of Christians who have a whole bunch of different viewpoints on this. So the first question that I would ask if I were you is, um, what's the purpose of Genesis 1 to 3? What's the purpose of Genesis 1 to 3? Um, most of you know that there's a creation account. Some of you might not know that there's actually two creation accounts in Genesis 1 to 3. One is all of chapter 1. The second one starts in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, and takes up the rest of the second chapter. You learn something when you come to church today. So what is the purpose of Genesis 1 to 3? And if there's two, two different creation accounts... Um, I would maybe ask this question. Is the purpose of Genesis 1 to 3 to give a detailed scientific explanation of how the universe came into existence? Given, given the fact that our understanding of the scientific worldview kind of came in, in the way we know it, kind of became popular in about the 17th century, and Genesis is a document that was written 1400 BC, you've got to ask yourself the question, was the author's intention to think, I'm going to give a very detailed what's going to happen in the 17th century scientific explanation um, for how the world came into um, existence. And for me, again, this is just my opinion, this is my opinion, being very clear here, for me, I think the answer to this question is that Genesis says who created, not how it was created. That's just my opinion. I think that you are free if you kind of view Genesis as who created, not how it was created. That allows you to follow where the scientific evidence leads you. And I think when you look at um, other creation myths or narratives from that around the same period, that around the same time in history, what you discover is that a lot of these myths and narratives have the world coming into existence out of chaos or out of disorder or out of Greek or Roman or pagan gods fighting and then the universe being created out of that. The Christian creation account is very, very different because it says it was created on purpose, with a purpose, out of order, with design. And so here's, here's another question that I would ask. This is the second question I'd ask to help you give a handle on it. Because um, I think this question can be um, really clarifying in some sense. And it's this. Is the cause of the universe natural or supernatural? Because I think um, what I often hear so much uh, when, I, when I hear people having these conversations, they're like, well, was it a seven-day? Was it, you know, evolution? Was it, like, fine-tuning? Like, what? And, they, and really what they're having a discussion about is the process of creation how we came to be. It's not that that thing isn't interesting, but I think what's a more helpful question is, is the cause, is the thing that started it all natural 
or supernatural? And so I think if you ask that question, that helps you navigate past, okay, well, you know, we can look at the process and we can look at the, ev uh, the scientific evidence, but at some point you have to kind of go, can space, time, and matter create itself? And if it can't create itself, then what could create it? And is the cause of that uh, natural or supernatural? So I hope those are um, some helpful handles to kind of help you um, thinking about this one. This next question um, I'm answering just because you guys like to ask easy questions. Um, is why does a loving God allow, uh, allow suffering? Uh, now here's, here's one thing that I, that I would say right off the bat. If you are going through some kind of um, uh, challenge in your life right now, if there's a relationship breakdown, if you're navigating some kind of um, suffering in your world personally, the answer I'm going to give you is it's just going to slide right off. It's not going to be helpful, okay? Because there are two types of ways to answer this question. There's the intellectual problem, and then there's the emotional problem. And they're two very, very separate things. When you are going through pain and suffering in your life, what you need to know is that there's a God who cares for you. What you need to know is you have people in your corner who are going to support you and going to walk through you and going to be, be there to pick up the phone whenever you call. What you don't need is an intellectual, philosophical argument for what, hey, look, it's, it's totally possible that God and suffering exist because you're like, great, how does that help me right now? And so they're two separate things. Um, and so the question that's asked really, I think, kind of fits into this one. It's the intellectual problem. Um, of evil and suffering. And here's something that you might not know, is that philosophers and people who think about this stuff, um, for them, this kind of debate has really sort of been solved. They're like, no, it's, it's definitely possible for God and suffering to exist. And, and here's the way they frame it. They would ask it this way. Is it possible that God has good reason to allow suffering? Right? Is it possible that God has a good reason to allow the suffering that you experience personally, but also on a global level? And parents, this is probably easy for you to think about. Just imagine um, that you, you have, uh, when, you, when you had your children and they were really little and you took them to get their immunizations. Now, some of them, you know, might have just cruised through that, like no dramas. But then, yep, I'm getting a head shake from the front row. But, then, but for a lot of you, they were screaming and they were crying. And they were like, oh my goodness, are, we, are they ever going to calm down? Like, and you were just like, oh, it's going to be all right. And the, but the reason you did that and the reason that you went through that is because um, you knew that a little bit of pain now was able to provide a lot of good in the long term. Now, I'm not just saying like, oh, it's a mystery and we don't know. All I'm saying is that, that if, there's a, if there is a limitation from a child to understand the suffering that they're going through in the moment to an adult, then we also have to acknowledge as adults that there is some limitations that we have on ourselves to understand the entirety. We don't have the full picture and we don't have the full scope and we might not be able to answer in this moment, hey, how does this suffering fit in and how does um, it make sense of, uh, sense of my life? The other thing that I would say, because I think this is a little bit of a common misconception, is that as um, on the Christian worldview, on the Jesus way of looking at the world, God's primary goal is not our happiness. Like God's primary goal, God doesn't wake up in the morning and think, how can I make people happy? The primary goal of following Jesus and the Christian worldview is just to know Jesus, to know Jesus. And again, this, this last part that I'll share, is just, it's just an interesting aside, it's not actually um, a way that I would answer this question, but if you're a Jesus follower, what I think is so interesting is in the first century, first century Jesus followers wouldn't have asked that qu this question. First century Jesus followers wouldn't have asked this question. In fact, um, if you look at the historian Luke's kind of account of the growth and the expansion of the church in the first century, 
there's, there's heaps of stories, but there's one in particular where there's a group of Jesus followers who get flogged and beaten for their belief in Jesus. And this is their response. They left the high council rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. Because in their mind, they're like, oh no, suffering in God, of course it's possible that God exists and suffering exists. Our goal in life is to know Jesus and to allow other people um, to know Jesus. Again, that um, last part might not be uh, super helpful if you're not a Jesus follower, but here is a question that is, right? Because I understand in this short amount of time, I can't possibly hope to answer all of the problem of evil questions, but, but here's, um, here's the question that I would ask you if you're still wrestling with it. Um, how does your worldview deal with the problem of evil and suffering? Because I, I think on the one hand, it is totally okay to be like, you know what, the Christian worldview isn't helpful, the Christian worldview doesn't answer the problem of uh, evil and suffering, that's okay, I can understand that. How does your worldview answer it? Because every single worldview that exists has to have an answer for this question. You can't just ignore it. Every worldview that exists has to have an answer and be able to answer um, this question. Okay, our fourth question. Can you be a Christian and be gay? This is, the, this is the question that I spent the most amount of time on um, this week. Not, and here's, here's why, let me, let me preface that. Not because I don't have an answer, not because I don't know the answer, but because there is so much baggage that is associated with this question. There is so much harm the church has done with this question. So um, here's, here's what I want to say before I answer this question. First of all, if you are a part of the LGBTQIA plus community, and you have ever felt judged or condemned by the church, I am, I am so sorry. Because it is not the role of pastors, it is not the role of Christians, it is not the role of the church down the road or the church online to judge you. Okay, that is not our role. In fact, as Jesus followers, we believe the only person who can do that is God. Okay, so let me just acknowledge that off the bat. I am sorry. Um, so, for me, the way I want to answer this is because I think there's two distinct ways of answering this question. The first um, way of answering this question is to ask the question, hey, is it possible for a, um, for a Jesus follower to be same-sex attracted? Is it possible for a Jesus follower to identify as non-binary or transgender? Um, and then the second part of the question is the discussion around, you know, what does Jesus teach around marriage? What does it, that mean for, you know, um, people who are transgender, non-binary? What does that mean for their relationships? And um, I'm going to annoy a lot of you with this, with this, but that's okay. I'm fine to annoy you. The second part of that question, I'm not going to answer. Uh, and here's why I'm not going to answer that. Because there are certain platforms for having certain types of conversations. I would never get up in church and tell you about issues that I'm having with my wife. Why? Because that's a one-on-one -on -one conversation for me and my wife. And just in that sense, that is a one-on-one -on -one conversation, I think, in my opinion anyway, to be had with people who are genuinely wrestling through this, these questions and these challenges. And so I want to let you know, if you're, if, you're part of the, um, if you're wrestling through that, if you're asking those questions, come and grab me, come and drop me a DM. I would love to have that conversation with you. Um, the first part of that question, um, is it possible to be a Jesus follower, to be same-sex attracted, to be, identify, to be transgender, to identify as, uh, as non-binary? I think that Paul has something really um, helpful to say to us here. And so, just for context, Paul is, um, what I'm going to share, Paul is writing this letter to this church in Galatia, and, uh, and effectively what has happened in this church in Galatia is um, all these people have become Jesus followers. And then um, this group called the Judaizers, who are the Jewish Christians, they kind of come along, and they're like, hey, um, here's what you need to know. Um, yeah, you're a Christian, but you're not a Christian Christian. 
because um, you haven't, like, there's some Jewish ceremony and there's some Jewish ritual and there's some things you're not up with yet. So we need to bring you up to speed so you can be a legitimate Christian. And Paul um, has some very harsh words to say to them. In fact, Paul tells them, because they were males, he says, um, you should cut your male appendages off, right? This is why you should read the New Testament, right? Because there's so much fascinating stuff in it, right? Paul gets so mad about this stuff. He's so angry about this stuff. And, in, and he writes to the church in Galatia and he says this. He says, for you are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. He's like, you want to know what makes you a Christian? Do you have trust in Jesus? That's it. End of story. No more. Nothing else. And then he goes on, he says, all of you who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And what Paul is effectively saying here is, is, hey, before you began following Jesus, there was a whole bunch of ways you used to identify yourself, you know, and, and some of it had to do um, with your sexual identity, some of it had to do with your career or your income or where you grew up or how you viewed the world. Paul said, no, 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 no. When you become a Jesus follower, what happens is your identity is now found in Jesus. And all the labels and all the, all the ways that you used to identify before now fall away because the only way if you're a Jesus follower that you are to identify is, or you're to be known is because of your identity in Christ. Um, and if you're someone who's been personally wrestling with this and you're someone who you're like drawn to the teachings of Jesus, but you just feel like there's going to be a gotcha moment at some point. Is there going to be a gotcha moment? Uh, the answer is there definitely won't be here. But here's what, here's what I think that Jesus would say, say to you based on what Paul has said. And again, this is what I think Jesus would say to you. Let me make that clear. I think Jesus would say this, that your sexual identity and your identity in Christ are not in competition with each other. And I think the church has done a really, really poor job at delineating that distinction, that your sexual identity and your identity in Christ are not in competition with each other. When you become a Jesus follower, it is your identity in Jesus. Like Paul said, did you put your faith in Jesus? Well, then your identity is in Jesus. Your sexual identity is now not in competition Um, with your identity in Christ. And what I think the church should do moving forward is do a better job at um, at making that distinction clear and then wading into the messiness of some of the conversations that we have in life. So, next question. Question five is... uh, Question five is... No, it's okay. I'll read it off here. What does being unequally yoked... There we go. Actually mean I'm curious about its interpretation for couples. Should I date non-Christians? So just some context here, because some of you are like, oh, I don't know what that is on about. Um, this person is referring to a little passage that comes out of a book called Corinthians. Um, again, the same Corinthians that were getting hammered while taking communion. And so Paul's writing to these uh, Corinthians, and he makes a comment about being yoked to uh, people. And so a lot of people have taught about this, is, you know, don't date non-Christians, don't be um, unequally yoked, all this sort of stuff. Um, just some context for where Paul wrote this in the letter. Effectively, what Paul is saying to this mess of a church is, um, here's what you need to know if you're a Jesus follower. You're, in, you're an ambassador of Jesus. You are an ambassador of Jesus everywhere you go. And so as an ambassador of Jesus, when people look at you, they need to see Jesus more often than not. And Paul makes this comment with him. He says this, he says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. What the heck does that mean, Right? So Paul is writing to the, a first century agrarian society, and in a first century agrarian society, what they would do is if they were plowing a field, they would often get two ox or sometimes two donkeys, and they would put this wooden uh, yoke over their, uh, over their back, and the, the idea was is that the two of them could move in the same direction. 
Now, you needed the same animal around the same size and around the same strength. Why? Because if you had an ox and a donkey, what would happen is the ox would charge ahead and the donkey would hold back, but they're stuck together, right? And so you would just, they'd just start doing wheelies, right? And just make an absolute mess in all of what was um, you know, in the field. And so effectively, what um, Paul is trying to say to this church, this is an absolute mess, he's like, hey, when you're a Jesus follower, it's not that you can't be friends with people who don't know Jesus. It's not that you shouldn't still be engaging with the world. But here's the thing, he says, hey, when it, when it gets to work and when it gets to conversations, there are going to be certain points and there are going to be certain behaviors and patterns that you should not adopt moving forward. So, for example, if, if you were running a business and you were kind of like, they always got to that point in the month where you just kind of like fudge the numbers a little bit so that you could like just, you know, make budget for the next quarter. Paul's like, well, when you become a Jesus follower, um, you, don't, you don't connect yourself to that kind of behavior anymore. You don't live that way anymore. If you, if you don't, you know, gossip most of the time and then you just get that one group of friends, um, you don't gossip anymore. Paul's like, there are certain behaviors and there are certain patterns and there are certain um, things that you should just not do as a Jesus follower anymore. Now, is this applicable to dating relationships? It's applicable to all relationships because Paul's talking about it to all relationships. Here's my personal piece of advice. Here's my personal piece of advice based on what Paul has said. I think if you're in the dating game, something that can be really, really helpful is to make a list of non-negotiable values. Again, values, right? Those are, those are things, this is really for the 6 p.m., but, you know, those are things that are not like, does she, you know, is she pretty? Does she smell great? Like, all those things, right? Make a list of non-negotiable values on them. Integrity, honesty, you know, family, whatever it is for you. And if you're a Jesus follower, I think faith should be one of them. That's just my opinion. Faith should be one of them. And then the first couple of dates that you're having, as you're getting to know that person, figure out where you land on those values, Figure out where you land on those values, because if you don't line up on those values, it is going to create a whole lot of challenges later in the relationship. I'm not saying you can't survive. I'm not saying you can't have a great relationship. I'm just telling you, when you get into a relationship, for those of people in the room who are married, they will tell you marriage is hard enough on its own, right? You don't need extra challenges thrown in the midst of it. So that is just um, something to consider, which leads us to uh, question, number, question number six, which we're going to finish on today. Um, how do you know if you're saved? How do you know if you're saved? I wanted to finish on. Um, I want to finish on this question. And the way I want to finish is, I want to show you a um, a picture. This is my wife and I um, on our wedding day, cutting our cake. Um, I was I forgot that I was going to include a photo, and I was trawling Facebook today this morning trying to find one, and I just realised how little photographs we have of each other um, on our wedding day online. So here's here's. Um, I wanted to answer this question um, from the perspective of someone who's kind of new to faith asking it and from someone who's kind of been a, uh, been a Jesus follower uh, for the same time. Now, this is, um, this is seven and a half years ago, which for some of you is like, gosh, he's only seven and a half years. For some of you, it's like, whoa, that's a long time. Okay, so it's all, it's all perspective. I was no more married to Emma in this picture than I am seven and a half years on. Right? In this picture, I was just as married to Emma as I am now, seven and a half years on. Now, I cleared this with Emma. It's okay for me to say this. I checked it with her. Emma would say that seven and a half years on, though, I am a better husband than I am in this picture. In fact, me in this picture is like, oh, you have no idea what you are getting yourself into. You think you know. And here's the thing is I will probably look back on photos of this period now in like 10 or 15 years' time and be like, Man, that guy had no idea what he was getting himself into. That guy did not understand what was going on. But am I just as married to Emma now as I was in this picture? The answer is 
yes, absolutely, just as married to Emma. And it's kind of this like both and process when it comes to this question. And there's the really fancy theological terms for those of you who like those, and I'm one of those people, that's why I'm going to share them, is this term, justification and sanctification. And justification is kind of like that moment at the altar where you say, I do, or I will. It's that moment where you are saved. And there's no, you know, from that point on, you are married, you will never be more or less married than you are from that moment on. But then the next part of of the same coin is this process called sanctification, which is the daily following and the daily putting Jesus first in your life. Because you know that, that in that moment, I could, like, at the altar, both Emma and I could have been like, yep, I do. If you don't invest in that marriage from that point on, it's a pretty terrible marriage. Like, it's a pretty horrendous marriage. And so, if you want to know where you stand before God, Jesus' best mate tells you, um, his name's John, he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that, that this is it, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John goes, that's it. You want to be justified? You want to be saved? You want to, you want to do I do? You want to uh, say I do? Do you have your faith and trust in Jesus? That simple. That simple. The problem though, the problem though, and this is the challenge for those of us who have been Jesus followers for a while, is sometimes we think that's all there is. Oh, I just said I do, and now I'm good. I, I'm sweet. You know, or I grew up in church, and maybe you grew up in church, and it was all about, hey, graduate, or, you know, finish communion, or finish that, and then it's, it's game over, you're done. And we miss this part that, hey, it's actually a process. And if you just go, hey, Jesus, I want to hang out with you, and then you never have a relationship, that's a pretty terrible relationship. And so the sanctification part of the question I would ask you if you're a Jesus follower is this, are you more or less like Jesus than you were a year ago? Are you more or less like Jesus than you were a year ago? And that's that sanctification part of the process. You're, you're, you know, where you stand with God, it's forever taken care of. But how you're growing that relationship is always in the process. That's why we say here, or I've said a whole bunch of times, salvation is free, it, it will cost you nothing, because it's super free. It won't cost you anything. But following Jesus... Ordering your life around Jesus' priorities, caring about the things that Jesus cares about, it will eventually cost you something. And if all it is for you, if following Jesus is all it is for you, is rocking up on a Sunday, sitting down in a pew, listening to music in this space, and the worst it ever gets is, oh, it's hot or it's cold, it's not really costing you a whole much. It's not really costing you a whole bunch. So... We're going to finish on that. I'm going to invite the band back out. As we invite the band back out, I'd love to pray. And again, do not miss next week because we have got three, uh, you're going to have a whole lot of fun with the three guests we have had next week. But let's pray. Um, Jesus, I'm just thankful for conversations. Um, I'm thankful for questions. I'm thankful for um, the opportunity to have these conversations and answer these questions um, in this space. And Lord, I just pray that, um, that these, this wouldn't have felt like, a, a you know, a, oh, I got a question answered and then it stopped. I felt like, I hope that this is a, uh, a conversation that actually uh, gets people to ask more questions, gets people to think more about um, some, of the, some of the questions of faith that they might have, and that through that, that, uh, that you would invite them into deeper and deeper conversations where more and more questions could be asked and they would come to know you.
Well, once again, thanks so much for listening. And hey, if you live in the Griffin, Marumba Downs, North Lakes, or Moreton Bay region, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend environments. You can find out more by heading to our website, beyondchurch.com.au. You'll find directions, service times, and what you can expect, as well as information on our Upstreet Kids Club, which is our primary school-aged environment, and Infinity Youth, our high school-aged environment. That website, beyondchurch.com.au.